Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Sumnick. For those of you that are regular listeners, you know that I was recently invited to come to NATO HQ in Brussels by their Office of Women, Peace, and Security. It was an incredible experience using the public diplomacy official NATO radio studio to record some interviews with the women of NATO and to chart the progress of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 and to highlight examples of the women, peace, and security agenda in action. So this is the final episode in that series, and I can't think of a better topic to close this off with than speaking with the women of Iceland at NATO. Iceland is currently a leader in feminism and introducing gender equality, and so it was fascinating to sit down with these three women and hear more about how that translates into foreign policy and global partnerships for Iceland. First, we will hear from the graceful and strong ambassador from Iceland to NATO, Ambassador Anna Johan's daughter. Next, we'll hear from Gudrun Thorbjörn's daughter. She works in the Political Affairs and Security Policy Division at NATO, and she's previously worked for the United Nations. Finally, we get to speak with Svana Aldenstein's daughter. She's advisor for Women, Peace, and Security at NATO, who formerly served in Iceland's Foreign Service. If you'd like to learn more, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org slash womenofnato. You can also search for the hashtag Women of NATO, and I highly recommend following their work on Twitter, at NATO1325. Thanks to the entire NATO team who helped make this series a possibility, and as always, thanks to you for listening. Welcome to the podcast, Ambassador. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about your current role? What does it mean in the larger picture of NATO? What is your typical day like? Okay, uh, let's start with uh, the role. Uh, I'm one of 28 uh, permanent representatives here of uh, the NATO countries. So our main uh, focus is the NATO Council, where we take decisions on behalf of our nations. And uh, a usual day would be uh, we we uh, usually uh, have uh, we usually have meetings several times a week here uh, in the ambassadors uh, group uh, in the council. Uh, we have working lunches, and uh, I have meetings with my staff. Um, I have uh, several informal meetings usually a week with international staff, uh, and then evenings maybe receptions or dinners, but uh, depending on the week, it, it can be long weeks or long days. What's the biggest challenge of your job? It Probably for Iceland, the biggest challenge is that we are uh, the only uh, nation in NATO that doesn't have a military, none at all. And being a military civilian, military political alliance, uh, we are sort of the odd one out and the smallest as well. But at the same time, that gives us a different perspective, and sometimes we have a niche capability that we can uh, contribute. What is the favorite part of your job? I think the favorite part is when we can uh, work together with uh, well, like-minded nations or, or groups 
and uh, work towards a policy or uh, um, something that we feel strongly about to uh, change change uh, behavior or change action. Um, we are very focused on comprehensive approach. So we want to build stability uh, at the same time in operations. We have been very focused on uh, the issues of, of uh, 1325, UN Resolution uh, 1325. And uh, that has been a focus point for us in both uh, our work in NATO and also in uh, our deployments, when we deploy civilians to various uh, operations and positions. Uh, we try to uh, focus on gender advisors and, and that work where we can. Do you feel diversity is important to the work that you do? Absolutely, absolutely. When I came here in 2013, um, there was one other uh, female ambassador. So there were two then. Now we are five and will probably be seven next year. So things are changing. And even though we have excellent collegial atmosphere in the council and we are all representatives of a nation, it is it is just stupid not to have, you know, both men and women at the table. Iceland has a unique history in terms of feminism and women's rights. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, fortunately, we have been uh, uh, in the forefront in many ways. Uh, we elected our uh, first female president in 1980, which was for all of us uh, young girls at the time a, a big role model. She was president for 12 years. And so it became very natural to think of uh, our leader being a woman. And uh, we also had a, a rather uh, um, unusual event in uh, the 1970s when women decided to take a day off. It's called the Women's Strike. So for one day, uh, 24th of October, women decided uh, to uh, meet and, and uh, have, make a protest, basically, in the, in the center of Reykjavik. So they took time off work and they left the kids with their husbands or whatever. And at that time, you know, nothing functioned, of course, if, if half of the population was away. So that was to demonstrate as well um, how important the contribution of women was in the home, in the workplace and everywhere. So that has been uh, kept, uh, kept uh, high on the agenda. And uh, this year, women took off work at 14.38 in the afternoon because considering the uh, difference in, in pay, um, that was when women, on average, would have been uh, finished in, in working for their wages. I just love that example. <laughs> I think it provides such a great example for the world, it's you know. A, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a reminder, at least, yeah, that we are not there yet, even though we are, we've come a long way and, and gender equality is, is among the highest in Iceland. But there's still work to be, to be done. Given the country you represent, mm -hmm. does that ever make it frustrating to deal with countries that perhaps don't have a similar standard? We try to work with with other countries on that. And, um, for example, um, our delegation in New York worked with Suriname on uh, promoting gender equality and men's role in that. So sometimes we try to reach out to maybe not the, not the usual suspects, as, as you might say, but here in NATO, we have a, a group of like-minded uh, nations working on the 1325 issues and how we can um, include them, empowerment of women and protection in, in operations. So we, uh, we, we feel that we have something to contribute in this area specifically and in other areas, and we may not have much to contribute in other areas. So our strength in this is, is a supplement to, to NATO's uh, work. Now, a little bit about your personal journey. Mm -hmm. 
What originally made you want to go into working in international relations? Well, I'm a lawyer by education. Um, I studied uh, European law and international uh, trade law in, in Edinburgh as a master's after I had been uh, uh, attorney at law to the district court for six years. And I was really fascinated with the international law and, and all, that, um, all that area. So I decided to apply for uh, the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, which was advertising at the time. And uh, I went there 15 years ago, and I'm still there, decided to give it a try. So I obviously liked it. And uh, the, the advantage of being in a Ministry for Foreign Affairs is that you have so very different spheres of uh, work. The, the, uh, you can move within a, a small administration like ours, at least. You can move from uh, trade issues to international issues to human rights issues, depending on where your strengths lie. And, of course, uh, being deployed abroad is, is an experience in itself. So I've had very diverse work in the Ministry for Foreign Affairs and been lucky enough to uh, be promoted and been given challenges to face. What keeps you motivated to continue working in international relations? Is it ever challenging to keep your energy up in such a dynamic world? <laughs> I think the most challenging part is that sometimes things move a bit slower than we would like them to move. Uh, but usually you can see some progress. And uh, one thing here in NATO, I think over the past years, we've seen a, a lot of progress and a lot of work being done on several issues like the gender issues. Uh, we also have, I think, we have to be uh, focused on the long term when we work in international relations. Uh, sometimes things take time. We can see the Paris Agreement now in the, in the climate issues that's finally uh, being uh, put into effect. And it can take time, but that's, that's also the role of the diplomats, to, to work on issues uh, long term and not something within uh, um, a mandate of politicians or, or a four-year term or something like that. Mm. I really like that. As a call to action for students and young professionals, mm -hmm. are there any topics in international relations right now that you feel is in need of some extra help? I think if we... Uh if we look at just the security and, and um, stability issues, uh, there's always need for uh, uh, increased effort there. Um, we have, unfortunately, there's a lot of, um, lot of challenges in the world. Um, we see a refugee crisis, we see uh, uh, international uh, crisis in, in many countries. So I think working on um, peace negotiation, working on uh, humanitarian issues and trying to trying to uh, work with um, international bodies to to move these issues forward is very important so in closing what is your advice to young women who are interested in entering an international career well as we would say in iceland uh, jump into the deep pool because you know you should you should really uh, challenge yourself you should uh, try and um, train or study what you're interested in, but you shouldn't be um, um, hesitant in accepting new challenges and trying to uh, tackle new things because that's also an experience that can be very, very interesting.
please welcome Gudrun Thorbjorn's daughter. She is a political officer within the Political Affairs and Security Policy Division at NATO. She's responsible for relations with allied Nordic countries and the Baltics. In addition for being responsible for multilateral relations with international organizations and other NGOs, welcome Gudrun. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your current job. I manage political relations with the allied Nordic countries and the Baltic states, which includes preparing checklists, scoping papers, and other country-related materials for the Secretary General, the Deputy Secretary General, and the Assistant Secretary General of my division, which is Political Affairs and Security Policy Division. And uh, this means that I put together packages for them when preparing for official visits, bilateral meetings, or other events. And uh, my section, in my section, we also built upon relations with other international organizations and NGOs. And this is interesting work because you need to have an overview of all the main topics the Alliance is focusing on and other issues that may arise. I also need to follow security developments and political affairs of the countries I manage relations with very closely. Is this a fun way to represent your country? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm what we call in here a VNC, a Voluntary National Contribution, uh, which means that I'm a sponsored expert from Iceland. And I'm very um, grateful for the opportunity and also to be a part of the contributions Iceland makes to the Alliance. Tell us about how you knew you wanted to work in international relations. Well, um, I don't think I really knew until I started my university studies. I was doing a bachelor's degree in political science and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to focus on. I wanted to do a minor and decided to uh, do gender studies. And it was a bit like everything fell into place after that. While researching UNSCR resolutions on women, peace and security, it was then when I decided to, that I wanted to pursue a career in this field. And I'm very passionate about gender equality and women's empowerment and truly believe that women's participation is vital for sustainable peace and security. What has your career path been like? In Iceland, we start university a bit later than in many other European countries, or at 20. And um, I did a year of exchange, and I also had a baby in the middle of my bachelor's studies, so I had to delay my graduation for a bit. But I didn't mind that I was a bit behind and this situation is not unusual at all in my country. Uh, but I wanted to do a master's degree abroad and I applied for a new program in human security at Aarhus University in Denmark. And me and my husband ended up moving there when our daughter was about two years old. And my master's studies in human security were essentially about understanding global vulnerabilities with a focus on the security of individuals and groups rather than putting the focus solely on the security of states. And there was a mixture of political science, anthropology and natural sciences, which I found interesting. And as a part of my studies, I spent some time in the Fiji Islands doing fieldwork and research on the empowerment process of rural women's groups in a particular region close to the capital area. And when I got back to Denmark, I did an internship with UN Women in Copenhagen. And uh, after working there, 
I did an internship at NATO, working for the Office of the Chapter Advisor in the International Military Staff. I was later hired there, but all of this eventually paved the way for my current job. You were 28 years old when you started your internship at NATO, correct? Yeah. I think that's really inspiring. And even before that, you mm -hmm. were an intern at the United Nations. Yeah. Can you tell us what your experience was like? Yes, I was 27 when I did my internship at UN Women and 28 when I started at NATO. I was very determined to make this work, even if it meant I was doing it later than many others. I will admit that many other interns and students in my master's program were very surprised when they knew I had a child and that I was still doing all of this. I was taken by surprise by their reaction and found it a bit strange because back home this is something very normal. At the same time, this was an eye-opener for me. I'm also very fortunate to have a supportive family and a partner in life that is willing to go along with all my crazy ideas. And when an opportunity came to work at NATO for the Office of the Gender Advisor in the international military staff, uh, we packed up and moved to Brussels. I felt it was an exciting opportunity to work on gender issues in a military environment. And uh, one of the first project I, projects I worked on was to draft military guidelines to prevent and respond to conflict-related sexual and gender-based violence. Any advice for young women out there who are trying to turn their internships into jobs? Well, I can only say what I feel uh, worked for me, but that would be to seize every opportunity. Um, to take initiative and to think of ways to be innovative and to be a good listener and accept constructive criticism. Um, everyone has something unique to offer and I think it's important to think of ways to contribute that in a meaningful way. Uh, for, for example, um, I was the only civilian staff member in the Office of the Gender Advisor and with my previous experiences I did have a different perspective to a lot of things. However, I think it's equally important that uh, managers do support young professionals and provide them with uh, opportunities where they can contribute substantially. And because that's so empowering and that's so motivating. And I think I was very fortunate in that way. Can you share a little bit about what it's been like raising a child amidst building your career? Well, of course, it has been challenging at times, but uh, in my case, the key has been the immense support from my husband. We are a team and equally responsible for raising our child. Iceland has a really unique relationship with gender equality. I really respect Iceland's stance on women's empowerment. Has that been key in your life and your career? Yes, I, I think so. I've had many role models, strong Icelandic women to look up to. There was a female president when I was growing up. She was a single mother. Um, so growing up in Iceland has definitely shaped us. But um, after moving abroad, I've met so many young professionals, especially women starting out their career, um, that are surprised that both me and my husband can pursue our careers and some of them didn't think this was possible. Why do you think that is? And what do you think is different, perhaps, about Icelandic culture? Well, I would think that is because they don't see it, or rarely see it. But of course, this is in large part dependent on where you're from and what kind of support is available to young people with children. 
um, there is a lot of work to be done to ensure equal opportunities. So in closing, what advice would you give to young women? Do you feel more women are needed in diplomacy? And particularly, if young women out there are facing challenges in the workplace, what motivation would you give them? Um, my advice? Um, don't um, underestimate what you, you can bring to the table. Um, the value of your perspectives based on your knowledge and your life experiences. That is the essence of the importance of diversity in the workplace. And I believe that is very important in foreign policy work. Hello, Svana. Thanks Hi. for joining us. Hello, Kitsi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you are advisor to the Special Representative for Women, Peace, and Security at NATO. And in working together, you've told me so many wonderful stories of your own experiences and also your thoughts on women in diplomacy. So I wanted to have you on to share a few of those. I almost feel like we should start with how you said many women are here because their career is they've pretended not to be a woman or they haven't cared about the well i i find that many women who reach higher positions they reach them because they don't flag their gender or they don't raise the issue of gender as anything because it would portray them as being rather weak either weak or aggressive because if you're trying to, just a couple of weeks ago, my friend and I were discussing this and she said, well, I would never want to be selected for a position just because I'm a woman. I want to be there because of merit. And I assure you that through my work on gender equality and 1325, um, the answer to that is how many men hold their position just because they're men, not because they're the best person for the job. and But that's never questioned. So um, it's not an offense to women that they are hired as a, you know, because we need the women on the team. It's the realization of those that are hiring that we need to have mixed views at the table. I heard an interview with... Um, I think it was a Canadian minister, I'm not quite sure. He was given the choice of selecting uh, an, uh, an assistant. And I think there were eight candidates that were uh, considered qualified. Seven men and one woman. And he selected the woman. And when he was attacked by the press, you just selected her because you're a, she's a woman and you needed to fill that quota. That his answer was, no, they were all qualified, but I knew I had all the other views at the table already. I needed that second insight that would come from a woman because they have a different background. They come from different experiences. And the knowledge that they bring with them into the boardroom, into government, into societies, it makes a difference. And it's just as valid as any man's experience 
but we don't hear it too often. And mostly the women that are in positions of decision making, they, they're not flagging the subject of gender. They're, they're working on substance. So they don't think about that gender role so much, which is fine. But as long as they are inclusive and realize that they have a position to bring other women also with them, because the critical mass of women at the table is what will bring about the change. It's not enough to have one woman because she only has one voice. And if you have eight men at the table and one woman, it's obvious she's probably smaller in stature. She is has a voice that is not as booming as men's. So it's really easy to overlook her views. But if you have that critical mass of women at the table that can echo each other's views or experiences, then it's that's what starts influencing change. So you and I were recently discussing your work in Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, the Ukraine file of uh, supporting uh, gender perspectives in NATO's cooperation uh, w with Ukraine um, has fallen onto my desk. And in that time that I've been here, so I've been fortunate enough to make four trips to Ukraine. They've been an amazing experience. And um, so we've seen a lot of young uh, Ukrainian women of all ages, actually, who've been very, uh, they were very apparent at the Maiden Square um, re revolt. And in the first meeting I went there, um, it was uh, an SPS workshop on how to, in, uh, on gender in the military or in the defense sector in Ukraine. Uh, the meeting was almost taken hostage by a group of young female soldiers that had this, they showed up in uniform. They had been at the front. They had been taking part in the battle at the front. Um, and then they had um, been sent there as cooks or nurses or um, accountants, but were then given, um, they were given uh, weapons to take part in battle without having any training. That was really astounding. And they were there to, maybe because they were such an international audience, they wanted to make their case heard. And they were complaining that when they got back, they didn't get compensated what, for what they had um, endured. Their wor work wasn't recognized. And even when they applied to the military to take proper training and get a military position, they couldn't because so many of the positions in the military were closed to women. Now, since then, these women, this was a year ago, these women have formed uh, an independent organization uh, that has been fighting for these rights. UN Women in Kiev has been uh, supporting them and they have now analyzed some of these barriers to their participation in the military. And the Ukrainian government has heard some of it. So they just, last week we learned they opened up 63 new positions in the military for women. However, that's only 10% of the positions in the, that are actually have a title in the military. So there's still quite a ways to go, but they, there's, there's will there. And on every trip to Ukraine, of course, I am in the bubble of 1325, where we hear the civil society 
and the uh, ministers who are working on gender integration uh, and all these um, that have to do with this file. Um, but still, um, the, the women, they're mostly working in civil society organizations, there's NGOs, and, and they, they don't have a formal role. So when it comes to sitting at the table and making the decisions, NGOs are not called in. It's those that hold the formal positions. So that's a lot of work being done by these independent organizations, which is done by women, unpaid work. It doesn't get seen. It doesn't get recognized. But it's the same as the suffragettes did in those days. I mean, they, nobody paid them to do it. That was not their job. But these NGOs, they have such a huge role to play. It makes a difference, but we've learned from other cases that um, what they need to also simultaneously do when they are doing all this work and they're trying to reform their societies, they're trying to build peace, is to secure themselves a seat at the table after peace has been negotiated or after a settlement has been reached in any ways so that they can then continue to influence through the official positions that we have at the state level so that they they don't get swept into a corner once the peace has been agreed that has happened in many many uh, instances uh, i've heard so many interesting stories on this job the last year one of them from northern ireland where they were key. The women were key to reaching the peace agreements in Northern Ireland. But this is their lesson. They said, we forgot to negotiate a place for ourselves. But without the women, I don't think a peace, a peace agreement would have been reached um, mm -hmm. when it finally was in, in Northern Ireland. So it sounds like the key is almost to nurture young women in the pipeline to be able to fill those positions once they're negotiated for. It sounds like many different steps can be taken, but what do you feel is the best path forward? There's always the dilemma because women, when they make a choice for a career, they're often faced with having to choose between family and career, whereas men can usually have both. Most women don't have a woman, a wife at home or a husband at home that can take that care burden. So many women, if they have to make that choice, will choose not to sacrifice having a family because there's nothing that really substitutes that. And I, I can really understand that. But if we want our societies to have um, a young generation we need to re reproduce. We need to have children. Uh, the uh, age uh, structure of the population is, is so, such that uh, very soon or already we are having a hard time supporting all the pensioners in our societies. And the only growth comes from immigrants because women who, and particularly women, but people who are highly educated have very few children and they are not sustaining society. So if if you have to make that choice, um, that's a pity. And I think it's a social responsibility of our institutions.
to recognize that women have temporary needs for leniency as regards um, flexible working hours, um, increased caring burden, and of course, if they recognize that this could be a shared role, then men would have access to that caring role. And that's a benefit for them. It's really good for them. <laughs> it was really, we had um, a speaker here March 8th uh, at NATO. Uh, his name's escaped, uh, escaped me for a little while, but I'm, I'm going to get it. Gary Barker from, from Mundo. Uh, I think it's Mundo. And um, so it was the first time that it w they were trying to negotiate or tell the NAC here, the council, what a difference it made to have women, no, men take part in the, the gender equality and 1325 uh, agenda. And so his point was that by giving fathers better access to the caring of the families, they have better connection with the children, they also become more peaceful. They get happier if they have good relations with their, with their children. And if they take part in the household chores, the family life is better. Can you tell us a little bit about your own path to NATO? You are a VNC, a voluntary national contribution here at the Women, Peace and Security Office. How did you come to work at NATO? And uh, tell us a little bit about VNC. So voluntary national contributions are staff that are supplied to NATO directly from nations. They are pay they're not on the international staff payroll, the NATO payroll. They're paid by the home countries. And um, nations do this quite a lot and increasingly, I think. Um, and I was, Iceland has no military. So we have no military background to bring to NATO, but we are very forward leaning on gender equality. And in many studies, we rank number one for women in the, you know, as part of the labor force, minimum pay gap, uh, now we have 48% of our women in parliament and all these statistics. So what we can bring to NATO is our knowledge of um, gender equality and the women, peace and security agenda. So I was uh, seconded by Iceland. Uh, they asked me to go here and uh, do this. Now I've, I've never really had this as a job before to be a missionary on 1325 or women's, women's participation in the military, um, but I've come to enjoy it um, because it's not rocket science, but it still eludes so many. There are so many that don't get it. Um, I was, uh, I'm a member of the Foreign, Foreign Service of Iceland. Um, work, I've worked there for nearly 20 years. I have four grown children, one grandchild, and uh, so I know all about those cho choices they had to make. I stayed eight years home with my kids, so I lost a bit of the career path or track. Um, but I wouldn't have sacrificed, sacrificed that for anything. But and then life brings you all these challenges. So I've I've just uh, come to enjoy them, and and um, it's really nice to be able to have this as a job to talk one-on-one -on -one about 
how you integrate gender into your daily work? How do you take the gender perspective? How can you put those gender lenses on? How can you see things from a gender perspective? So in your partnerships, who do you engage with? Who do you talk to? Who gets the benefits of your support? Who do you consult? Where do you get your information from? What, how good is your intelligence? Does it come from half the society or the full talent pool? So th these are all questions that it, it's not, they're not hard to understand, but to keep them in mind is a challenge. And coming from Iceland, there yeah. were some recent events that I think really explained how passionate Iceland is about equality. Can you tell us about that? In 1975, women in Iceland walked out on their jobs at, I think, in the afternoon. That was in 1975. That was way back. I was 19 at the time. I was um, in Reykjavik. I didn't live there, but I was there. And I marched down with all the women, you know, next to me was were women with uh, scarves and, you know, they almost had their cleaning buckets with them. There were nurses, there were teachers, there were housewives. And we felt this huge surge of power of all those women coming together and realizing that if we work together, if we do sort of, it was sort of a civil disobedience act, but it was uh, quite well supported by many of the men. They kept the hospitals running and the nurse, uh, nurseries going, or many of the women, of course, had to take their children with them. Um, but it was a real demonstration of how much you can do if you just stand together. And so many years since then, I don't think every year, but we've done this on the 24th of October. And uh, I think in 2005, women marched out at about 1405. In 2009, it was about 1425. And this year it was 1438. And that that's the, uh, so the time is dependent on, uh, it's to try and explain the wage gap because we're supposed to have access to all the same jobs. We're supposed to have equal pay. We're supposed to have all these equality measures in place already, but there's an unexplained wage gap. So if, if you consider men and women being paid equal, we've done our job at 1438 at this time. And it still takes 52 years to reach gender equality if we are going to go at the same pace in Iceland and 130 or something in the world as, as an average. Wow. Yeah. And this year we had a female prime minister and she walked out with uh, not the prime minister, but the foreign minister. And she marched down to the to the the demonstrations with all the women at the ministry and they all went there together to show solidarity that this is something unexplained. I really like that about Iceland's history. Final question. What advice would you give to young women? I think uh, realize that you as a woman are precious to the world and you shouldn't have to uh, be a man to step into power or to do something significant, you should, and society should allow for you to be able to have a family, have a career, contribute to society with all that comes from being a woman, with the values, with your strengths, with your 
uh, views of the world. And the world is missing out on those opportunities if we don't open women's mind to the fact that they have to be and their best contribution is being women as they are. They don't have to become men to be powerful. And when you really step into your power, that's when things start to happen. Thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast is Misty Moses by the musicians Rodrigo y Gabriela. A very special thanks to Rubyworks Records in Dublin for allowing use of this song for educational purposes. For more information, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org. And thanks for listening. <laughs>